Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Uh, welcome to the Publishing Radio Podcast. It is our first week back recording since Scott absconded from his duties to look after a new small child. <laughs> congratulations, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> the Sullivans also pass on their congratulations. Ah, that's very kind of them. And yeah, with us today is Premi Muhammad, who is a fantastic author. I've read I've read The Annual Migration of Clouds, which is a novella, and it's sort of set in Canada, and it's a bit plaguey and a bit weird and a bit literary and, and all the kind of things that I generally enjoy. But Premu is also one of the, the first people I remember seeing on Twitter when one of those routine tweet threads go around about, would you continue to write if it didn't make any money? And she had a good distinction between, yes, we would continue to write because we love it, but publishing is not the same as writing. And would we publish if we didn't make any money? Maybe not. <laughs> And just generally being a, a very funny person in the face of the abyss that we, we call this industry, which is always appreciated. So if you'd like to just talk to us a little bit about your books, your journey, any introductions that you feel are relevant, how you got started. Sure. And yeah, thank you so, so much for inviting me. I love this podcast. I was so excited to get the invite to come on here and talk about my publishing journey from the abyss into a slightly different abyss with less money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I've always been one of those people who's just, you know, written as a hobby, you know, sort of like how some people play golf or do cross stitch or yoga or whatever. I don't know. You know, growing up, my parents claimed that I was reading around age two because that's the kind of thing I feel like Asian parents or immigrant mm. parents like to claim. Yeah. Uh, I can't prove it. I do know they never read to me because they were claiming that I could read, you know, starting from toddlerhood, which, okay. I've also been writing down stories for as long as I can remember. I don't think most of my friends knew that that was my hobby. They were just like, oh, you know, what a pale weirdo cave fish who stays inside her house with her computer instead of going out with us and going clubbing and playing bail tag and whatever, like normal people. I'm like, you know, don't say anything <laughs> or they're going to want to read it or something like that. And then in about 2015, somewhere around there, a buddy of mine urged me to submit a short story to an anthology call, which was She Walks in Shadows, which was a, a Lovecraftian or modern cosmic horror, you know, women-centered anthology edited by Paula Gran and uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And it's like, oh, well, I haven't written a short story since like the last time I was forced to write a short story, which I think was like grade nine. <laughs> but he was like, you know, A, you could make some cash money and B, this sounds like the kind of stuff you're reading recently because we were emailing about it. And uh, I was like, OK, well, you know, let's let's see. So I wrote the short story and submitted it and they bought it. And so for a while there, my submission to acceptance ratio was one, uh, which did not last. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> the check came in, uh, you know, maybe a month or something after it was accepted. And I was like, oh my God, you can just lie and make a small amount of pocket money? Shattered my paradigm. So I started writing uh, short stories more or less for fun and, you know, for book money, well, you know, to make money to buy books because you have to recycle books back into the writing. You know, the problem really with, with letting people know that you're a writer is that other writers find you and then you become friends with them. And then some of them start like nagging you. They're like, I know you've got a novel hidden away somewhere. You know, the real money isn't in short stories, it's in novels. You should, you know, you should get literary representation and you should, you know, you should sell your novel. I was like, well, first of all, stop bugging me. And they're like, no. So <laughs> why do we do this to each other? <laughs> and those writers are very good at producing peer pressure. And some of us are very susceptible to peer pressure. This is the worst industry to be a people pleaser in. Um, so I dug one of my novels out of the trunk. Um, and I think I've told this story before, but it wasn't what I considered to be my best work. Uh, what it was, though, was a completed novel because I had a bad habit of just writing things that went on and on and on and on and on and just never ended. <laughs> this one, though, had the words the end at the end. Uh, so I polished it up a little bit. Um, that novel actually was written during my first degree. Uh, so like, I think I started in like 2018 and finished uh, the year I graduated, so like 2002, you know, writing on it around my work and um, you know, I take it out over the years, noodle with it a little bit, put it back, take it out, put it back, take it out, put it back. So I queried with that. I did the typical, I'm not a huge believer in astrology. Um, you know, I think it's bunk, uh, but it's fun bunk, which I think describes a lot of things. Uh, I did the typical Virgo thing and I made this amazing spreadsheet when I planned to query in 2016. I, you know, the name of the agent and what agency they were and what sales they had had and who their clients were and whether they were open and what their manuscript wish list said and their email address and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I figured I'd go in batches. You know, they always tell you in case you get feedback back from them. So I picked out, you know, sort of my 10 dream agents and I queried them uh, and I got, I don't know, six requests for fulls and two offers of rep wow. in the first batch. And I was like, oh, this is very exciting. And then I was looking at my spreadsheet, like I just wasted like a hundred hours of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but lesson learned is uh, I had literally planned to spend like a year querying. And then in about six weeks, I got an offer of rep and I was like, okay, let's throw away the old plan and rearrange the year. And uh, we went out on sub uh, with that novel. And it took a little while, but it ended up selling in a, so it was, it was a standalone, written as a standalone, um, pitched as a trilogy, and then it ended up selling in a two book deal, which is why I continually refer to the three books in the completed duology. And people who don't know the joke <laughs> coming back to me, they're like, aren't there three books? I'm like, yes, it's a duology of three books. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I've read Douglas Adams. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I guess that kind of put me on the publishing treadmill. So I did those two books and then, and of course the, the first one debuted straight into the teeth of the pandemic, like literally March 14th, 2020 mm. was when it came out. Like it came out and then the next day, everything in the world basically locked down. <laughs> so good timing on that one. Uh, very good for a publishing career. I understand like this. Um, yeah, so I did the sequel a um, couple months before the, uh, 
the sequel came out, my editor emailed me and my agent, like, very perky. So, what do we think of a title for the third book? And I kind of sat there. I was like, for the what? So my agent replied quickly. He's like, hey, we're just going to chat about this for a minute. <laughs> and got back to me like, no, you didn't have a stroke. It's fine. Uh, we, we didn't actually sign anything for the third book. It's he's, you know, he's making overtures. He wants there to be a third book. And I was like, well, because I thought it was going to be a duology, I really kind of shut a lot of doors at the end of that second book. Yeah. Like a lot, of, like meaningfully a lot, Michael. And he's like, do you want the cash money or not? I was like, I do. I also don't really want to write a third book. Uh, so they ended up making the deal for the third book in the trilogy, plus um, Untitled Fantasy Novel, which is coming out next year and now has a title. Um, and between then, I was um, writing and, I guess, selling novellas because I like the novella length. I think it's kind of mm. a cool length to work with. Um, and short stories also and uh, all this actually I should mention while holding down a full-time job mm -hmm. and uh, here we here we are today my latest book just came out May 16th which is the short story collection no one will come back for us uh, from undertow mm -hmm. publications and um, I guess we'll see where things go in the next couple of years I have like five books to do out in 2024 25 I think Jesus <laughs> <laughs> what did you know about the publishing industry when you first started because you got on that treadmill very quickly so there was not you know most of us we have a little bit of time to despair and and kind of wallow <laughs> in the query trenches but that that sort of you didn't have that preparation i guess yeah. for better or worse i just i stepped onto the treadmill and it was already cranked up to like 15 kilometers an hour and i was like oh you know this doesn't look like it's running that fast no you're handing stuff in like every freaking couple months what i knew about it i mostly knew from martin amos's book the information which i read when i was 17 okay. and continues to be one of my favorite books i don't know if you guys have read it no um it is it's <laughs> it's billed as a satire of the publishing industry but you know, now this many years on, I'm like, no, he wasn't really exaggerating about a lot of this. <laughs> like, it's played for humorous effect, uh, but the actual publishing, like, mechanics part of it is not inaccurate. Mm. Um, so I knew, I knew about agents, I knew about going on submission. Um, it's all, you know, it's a little dated because I think it was published in 98 or 97. But, um, you know, the whole... Um, them that's got get more and them that's not got get nothing so the the two characters there you know there's one very very talented writer who makes absolutely zero money and cobbles together a living doing you know book reviews and and other other things like he freelances a couple days a week as an editor for this little magazine and stuff like that and his wife brings home most of the money and he looks after the kids and then this other writer who is just <laughs> terrible and sells millions and millions and millions of books. And uh, most of the book revolves around, um, you know, the rivalry between these two writers who've been friends for years. And the, the bad writer is now up for all these literary prizes. And so he's going out and schmoozing some of the jurors and stuff. And um, I just, I think I really internalized some of the messages of publishing that I otherwise would not have learned until I was in the trenches. Okay. Um, but I guess now that I'm here, I keep thinking I was, I was wrong about the book being funny. The book is accurate. And 
<laughs> the only thing that it uh, missed out on was, I guess, kind of some of the behind the scenes stuff that, that you guys discuss on the yeah. podcast, you know, the influence of um, booksellers and, and librarians and mm -hmm. things like that. But in terms of uh, things like reviews and advances and um, working with an agent and going on submission and dealing with editors, um, I already had a picture of how that worked that's fair. but i kept thinking you know this was like 15 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever it'll be different now because it's you know it's 2017 everything will be different nothing is different <laughs> and on <laughs> uh, on the financial side did you come in with certain expectations relative to your writing or the industry uh or was it really just it, it sounds like it was almost just hey this is fun play money uh, that you kind of just happened into because you were good at writing? That's a good question. It, it very much was, well, I guess I'll take whatever we get offered, mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I did have a real job. So I was like, I'm not relying on writing to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. I'm using writing for fun money because I would be writing anyway. And so sometimes if I finish a thing, I go off to sell it. And sometimes I don't. And I just have it because I wanted to write it and I wanted it to exist. Yeah. So um, yeah, that first uh, that first deal was uh, $10,000 US, so 5K per book. Okay. Um, and I didn't know uh, that that was considered sort of laughably low until much later talking to friends who were complaining about their advances that were like 30K and 35K and how they were suffering. And I was like, oh, um, I feel obscurely insulted now. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when, but when, I think that happens. Yeah, when when <laughs> I took uh, 10k per book uh, from tour, I, I I mean, I I felt like it was low. <laughs> I didn't feel like it was the money I wanted to see, uh, but mm -hmm. I certainly had no idea of uh, of the range and what it might mean to take that kind of a deal, etc. I I had no idea. This leads me into my next question, and I, I'm sorry, Sunny, if this steps on no, no, the carry toes. On, of, carry okay, on. <laughs> the, this might step on the toes of some of the things you were hoping to get into. But so, I followed a, a bit of a similar path, right? I I got into writing because I I loved books, and writing was a a form of self expression that I needed, and a form of you know creating something, putting something out into the world, both creatively and I guess economically, right? I wanted to have something that wasn't just my full-time job. But I built a career at the same time as I was building myself as a writer and, you know, getting an agent, getting a deal, etc. And that became more difficult than I thought it would just because of how much time each of those takes if you want to do them at a high level, right? So I, I'm interested to hear from you whether that was a challenge for you and how that all worked out with, you know, juggling writing and a full-time job uh, slash career, right? Because, you know, the, even more can come with a, uh, the implications of a career and trying to get ahead a in whatever field and whatever other personal, you know, life stuff you've, you chose to work in. How, how did that work for you? And, and uh, I guess, how did you handle it? And, and how would you recommend others handle it or not? Oh, big questions on that one. And, you know, it's funny because 
maybe six months ago, I would have had different answers to a lot of this. But the short answer, I guess, is the timing was really weird for this one because like I said, you know, I've got seven books out now. All seven books have come out during a global pandemic. (laughs) So there's been that on top of everything else. But, you know, in terms of managing just my writing and my job prior to publishing, that was, you know, that was easy because you always make time for your hobbies. Um, You know, I would come home and like open up a novel and work on it and relax kind of basically because there's no pressure. There's no one waiting for it. There's no one expected to judge it, nothing like that. It's not going to get reviews. It's not going to get an advance. It's not going to worry about sales. Um, It was just a world where I could go and, you know, basically like LARP with the characters. (laughs) Um, After publishing, I guess what surprised me, um, maybe shouldn't have surprised me that much, but did. Uh, What surprised me is all the stuff that's peripheral to publishing. Um, because it starts off so slow, it's kind of deceptive. So uh, people finding out that I had a novel coming out, um, you know, they'd email me and be like, hey, do you want to do an interview for us? So they'd send me five interview questions and I'd type out my answers and send them back. And it's not until like a year and a half later when you realize that you're doing, you know, podcasts and interviews and, um, you know, Zoom stuff and panels and, uh, you know, 400 things a week, as well as doing your own marketing, um, because otherwise the book is kind of a secret. And um, that is another almost full-time job on top of my actual full-time job, Mm -hmm. um, on top of actually trying to meet my deadlines to write things Mm -hmm. to give to people that already paid for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So where that eventually led was I completely, completely burnt out probably more than a year ago. And then this year in March, I quit my job. I just, I looked at um, my finances and my health Mm -hmm. and my time and the fact that I had basically stopped doing things like cooking and sleeping. Mm. And I just was like, okay, so if something in this trifecta of publishing, writing, job uh, is going to kill me, I really don't want for it to be my job yeah. because I already hated my job at that point. Um, I'd hated it for a couple of years. I used to love my job. And then, you know, a bunch of changes were made. I got a new supervisor. Several people threatened to quit if that supervisor uh, got the position and they weren't bluffing and they did quit. So the rest of their work got redistributed to us. Yeah. And then uh, several more people left the sinking ship and I was still you know, standing there like wet up to the waist, like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. (laughs) Maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll just spontaneously get better and I'll wake up tomorrow morning and she'll be fantastic. And I kept thinking that for like months and months and months. And I didn't have the energy to job hunt. So I did the worst possible thing I could think of and I quit without having another job lined up. Um, And I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll survive. I'll coast on savings for a little while. I didn't realize really how burnt out I was, like that I had just been digging and digging and digging and finally reached the end of myself, Mm -hmm. which is like a horrifying feeling. Yep. And that was when I decided to leave. I just could not do anymore, could not take anymore, almost couldn't function anymore. And I didn't want to miss any writing deadlines because (laughs) that would be bad. 
So since then, I think I've just been uh, recovering. And if I had any advice for past me, uh, it would be something like, um, don't set yourself on fire to keep the worst people warm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good advice. Uh, just evaluate who exactly you're warming by, by throwing your bones on there because um, it's, it's very much, it's very much the way you raise too, I think. Like my parents, um, my whole family just hammers it into you, drives it into you that you have to have a job and you have to have a real job. And ideally, if they're going to talk about you in public, you should have a prestigious job. You should be, you know, something extremely stable and safe and not like their lives, you know, coming to Canada and, and, you know, suffering for years and coming from, you know, this very, very underdeveloped, mm. you know, South American country um, where nobody had any money and they literally knew people that starved and um, they wanted their kids to do better. And that means getting a particular type of job yeah. and associating with people who have jobs and not considering the ways that you could make money without a job, like the formality of a capital J job. Yeah. So trying to deprogram myself from that has been a journey. I don't think it's <laughs> over yet. I'm, I'm still job hunting. <laughs> I recognize some of those same issues, I guess. Yeah, not really quite the same. My parents wouldn't tell anyone that I'd written a book until it came out and they still haven't told any of their friends or relatives really <laughs> that I'm divorced because that's shameful to them, which I find really funny because I fucking had a drink when I was divorced. I was like, this is great. Everyone should get divorces if they want one. Um, (laughs) Before you had divorce, people just like sat around being miserable in relationships they hated, you know, so it's great. Um, But yeah, I was going to ask with burnout, could you feel it creeping into writing? Because I think this is something I've thought about a lot in the past year where, you know, when I wrote Book Eaters and I was really scraping the barrel to get the energy to write where my life had narrowed to the point of like no hobbies not seeing other people or anything because it was just like looking after special needs kids and trying to finish this stupid book and trying to get out of my marriage and that was it and I really noticed the difference writing the next book this past year is the first thing I've ever written where I've not been in critical burnout the whole time (laughs) and it's such a better experience it is almost joyful I would love for my writer friends who are almost it seems like most of them in some stage of burnout or another at any given time to know what it feels like to write a book without that crushing like feeling hanging over them because it makes me wonder how the books would be different and how our careers would go differently if we weren't writing under that kind of cataclysmic pressure pressure yeah um god that's such a good question i think also too because i had all those years of loving writing and knowing what it felt like when I felt like a story was really coming together and was being its normal self, kind of, um, while I was being my normal self. Uh, When burnout started to really creep in around the edges and I started, you know, waking up in the morning, wishing I was dead, but also going, like, what's that smell? It smells like something's on fire and it's my brain. I I was still handing stuff in um, because the other driving imperative was to not miss any deadlines and not be like that guy who um, throws off the whole production schedule. And it really, it's so much, so often felt angering later on. Like I was just angry at the way some things had gone. Even like, you know, stories and stuff that I finished six or eight months ago that I had to hand in for like an anthology or something. I just, I look at them now and I'm like, this seems 
technically okay, but emotionally dead. Like, who wrote this? This doesn't seem like something I would write. Most of the words seem to line up in the correct order, but if I had the chance to redo this story, it would look very, very different. And I also like to tell this story, like, what it felt like was writing the sequel to my debut novel. So I'd never written a sequel before. I'd, I'd only written standalones. I didn't know how you wrote like a series or whatever. Uh -huh. And of course, all the advice you Google is like, well, here's how you plan a trilogy, which presumes that you haven't written the first book and then have to create a sequel out of nowhere uh -huh. from the first book. But I kept writing it, scrapping it, writing it, scrapping it. And that was the early days of the pandemic. It was due May 31st, 2020. And I was just in this haze of like terror and anxiety and loneliness. And I hadn't seen another human being for like weeks. And there was this deadly disease floating around in the air and we weren't supposed to get together with people and there were no vaccines. And anyways, um, the book ended up being about 119,000 words and I wrote it in 11 days. And it was just a fugue. I don't remember writing it. Um, and it ended up going up for a couple of awards later, but I just wanted to pull people aside and be like, that book was not the book I would have written if my brain was working. And now I keep thinking, you know, over the past year or so, none of what I've tended in has been what I would have written if my brain was working. And if I had the actual time to work hmm. on the story, you know, if I had more than like two hours a week or whatever to, to write fiction, and then trying to frantically write my normal story in those two hours a week, uh, it just wasn't sustainable anymore. And I'm so mad now. Yeah. Like, I'm so mad that I was handing stuff in that I considered to be so subpar. It's um, funny, every time uh, people ask in interviews, like, where, you know, where did you get your inspiration for book eaters? And I always, like, there's a part of me that just really wants to tell them, look, it, it just, it was a story that made sense when I was just really fucking tired. And yeah. then later, when I was less tired, I had to fix it and make it, like, work. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make any sense when I first finished it, that's for sure. <laughs> it's sleep deprivation plot line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand that, and and my journey's a little different because I worked and reworked my one book and now my sequel so many times, so I, I didn't necessarily capture the the essence of, of any epic of my life quite so cleanly as, as what you're talking about. But there is some beauty to that too, right? I mean, it's, it's a part of, part of your life that you went through, and uh, maybe crystallized some some piece of what you were going through at that that time in that work. So I I, I hope at least someday <laughs> the anger turns to acceptance and and there's there's some form of uh, I don't know therapy or uh, catharsis there. But I I am interested now. So <laughs> uh, sorry I've, I yeah I I. I could go into my own breakdowns that happened along the way, no, but no, I, I feel free. <laughs> I, th I think we've hit some of them. Uh, 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 I feel like half the podcast has just been uh, <laughs> me treating our guests as, as therapists. <laughs> but I, I am interested how you feel now that you know you've you've made some radical life changes and and for context i i'm in a very privileged position where my wife has a career as well and she's you know now she's both making all the money for our family and doing most of the work with a, a second child so 
she's a real trooper, and <laughs> I am I am a very fortunate uh, son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> not literally. My mother is wonderful. But yeah, I, I do I do wonder how you're you're doing now that you've made some radical life changes and you don't have to juggle quite so many things other than, you know, the financial pressure of having quit your job. Do you feel better about your writing? And, and is, is that burnout? Can you, can you feel it melting or do you feel like it's something that's going to take more time and more effort to get through? I feel better for sure. I think my first feeling upon quitting my job actually was just immense relief mm-hmm. like this sense that you know that maybe now I could focus on on healing and getting better mm-hmm. and then you know it, it was just there were like three ish weeks there that was just like a blur I can barely remember what I was doing after that final day I mean I know crying laundry trying to clean the house remembering how to excuse me sorry there's a excuse me sorry cat <laughs> Sorry, we can probably edit that out. It's just... It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. My dog uh, interrupts. Extremely, we like interruptions. He's extremely interested in going in like the four inches of space between my mic and uh, myself, and he's not going to fit. Um, yeah, I feel better. I feel relieved. Uh, it was touch and go there for a while, though, because I was like, my brain isn't working anymore. And that was a really... That was just a very unpleasantly, almost sickening feeling when you realize that. I was like, I can't think clearly I can't remember I can't focus I mean I have severe ADHD so I couldn't focus anyway but I wasn't even focusing up to my usual poor standard (laughs) I I couldn't answer emails I couldn't review contracts people would ask me questions in interviews and I'd be like I don't remember the name of my book Uh, I don't remember my name I don't know who you are how did you get into my house (laughs) it's a it's a lot better now though and I knew the point at which things were turning, which was a couple of weeks ago, particularly, I got an idea for a story and just kind of sat there like, oh, I'm excited about this. Oh my God, wait a minute, I'm excited about a piece of writing. What do I do now? (laughs) And the answer was, if I want, I can sit down and write the story. I've also been shuffling stuff off my plate uh, like crazy because I sat down and listed all the stuff that I was supposed to be doing and there were 81 things Hmm. and some of those were one-time things like um, complete grant report uh, Alberta Foundation for the Arts but that's like 15 or 20 hours of work so that's just like a single item and then some of them are ongoing things like update webpage and I just I stared at it for like 20 minutes (laughs) like oh my god how was I trying to do all this and work 40 to 60 hours a week and commute and again, occasionally shower or eat food. Mm -hmm. I just, (laughs) so I I started trying to X things off that list um, that kind of weren't serving me anymore. And a big one of those was one that I'm still kind of bitter about, which is like book promotion, Hmm. because I'm with exclusively small presses um, up until one of my books is coming out next year. And small presses don't have the resources to promote your books. Hmm. But for some of them, it almost felt kind of I don't know. Again, I'm, I have to use the word insulting. Like, you know, oh, not even a tweet on launch day. <laughs> like, you guys weren't going to say anything. They're like, no. Your this books is are a secret, just between you and yeah, them. It's a secret. <laughs> we published your book, but we're not going to tell anyone we published your book. Your book is the side chick. And <laughs> uh, my agents and I actually emailed them, and they seemed shocked. They're like, do you want some graphics or something? I guess we can take a couple hours and do that. And by that point, it was almost like the afternoon, and. 
till the, like they didn't promote it either. Like afterwards, they didn't say anything about it. It won an award. They didn't say anything about it. Occasionally, they would retweet something that I had tweeted. But when they were promoting other people's books that were coming out, like Big Splash on launch day, I was just sitting there like. So the feeling is that I have to do something, otherwise no one will know the book exists. And the feeling is not really compatible with healing burnout. Yep. Yeah. Like all I can do basically now is I do promo when I feel like it now and then once a week. Otherwise I have to teach myself to stop caring that my publishers are not saying anything about the book. Yeah. That's just how it's going to have to be. So pushing all that off my plate also freed up a couple of hours, but yeah, I can write again. I feel excited to write again. I'm feeling a lot less guilt about turning down things I genuinely don't want to do. I'm feeling a lot less, you know, of that impulse to kind of beat yourself up and be like, oh, you know, I should have, you know, gone on that guy's blog or whatever with a guest post because he has thousands of readers. And now I'm like, no, that's like seven hours of my life. I wouldn't get back to write this enormous essay for him. No, I just, I'm, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and I'm not good at saying no. <laughs> In some ways, I think it's it's hardest for for small press authors because, like self, like we always say, you know, in in this we say online and we say on the podcast that kind of self promo doesn't move the needle for trad, and it it does and it doesn't. Like, it it will get sales, but then our royalties are so low that it's not really often worth the time. Whereas, like a, a self pub author, if they if they're aggressively promoting their book and they get two hundred sales out of that, they're getting a much bigger chunk of money than we are from. A, couple hundred sales but you've got the same royalties that we do that like a well yeah then like a big five book will do but less kind mm -hmm. of resource publisher resources at your disposal um mm -hmm. yeah i think for my case though it was it was time that i felt i had to spend because yeah the choices literally were if i don't say anything guess what they're not saying anything either literally no one will know that this book has been published my parents don't know this book has been published. I don't want them to read any of my stuff anyway. But, you know, my closest friends would not know that this book is in the world because the pub is not saying anything. And again, for those guys, they're heavily promoting their other books, so they actually don't have an excuse, so I just am mad at them. But um, for the really, really small guys, like, look at Neon Hemlock. They published one of my novellas that ended up winning the Nebula Award. It won the World Fantasy Award. Neon Hemlock is one guy. His name is Dave. Like, it's, <laughs> this is a micro press. It's like a person. Was <laughs> uh, Dave so happy? Have resources to go out there and, like, you know, bang the drum to tell people to buy this book. Like... All the promo for that book had to be completely organic and 90% of it had to be me because Dave is trying to run a press. Dave actually is the press. W was like, Dave happy that it won the award? <laughs> oh, he was so excited. Oh my oh, God. bless him. <laughs> um, he and I were actually um, chatting like in Twitter DMs during the Nebula ceremony. And I was talking about the novella that I assumed would win. <laughs> so I was like, oh, hang on the category's coming up and then they announced me and I was actually eating dinner at the time and assumed I wouldn't win. So I had to quickly like find my speech and like open it up and like run my tongue across my teeth. And I, I had bacon in my teeth <laughs> during my Nebula's word speech because I assumed that the novella was not going to win. So that was a nice shock. And then, you know, as soon as it was all over, which was like two minutes later, um, I get back to Twitter and Dave is like, you won, what is, what's happening? I'm so excited. Did it help sales? <laughs> Is that cynical to ask? Like, do the awards help sales and, and platform and... No. 
No. Okay. Nope. Cool. Doesn't help uh, future <laughs> advances or anything. Either. No, no. I've, we've got numbers now. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's because uh, you know that was that was last year, and now it's 2023, and no, not really. Hmm. Um, yeah. It doesn't move the needle, like you said. Um, and again, with you know with future advances and stuff coming up, uh, people are like, oh wow, you've won like three pretty major awards and you've been up for basically all the other ones like the Locus Award and the British Fantasy Award and the Crawford Award and um, you know how's how's eight dollars uh eight dollars you're like okay well <laughs> it's also the case where it's like you know I, I talked about quitting my job I have also been talking a lot about quitting publishing because yeah. why stay in something that's not going to pay you to stay yeah. why not leave and go do something that will pay you mm-hmm. You know, so you run a Patreon. I mean, have you mm-hmm. ever considered just leaving Trad, going full Patreon, full Kickstarter, full self pub stuff like that? Being totally I thought about it. Yeah, um, I thought about self pub particularly because I do have friends that self pub, so I can kind of draw on their experience and their network, and presumably they won't you know, like steer me wrong. And I also, with my agent's permission, uh, self-pubbed a novella just online in 2018, because I kind of wanted to see what the process looked like and like how hard it was. Um, and the really funny thing, of course, was that that one sold like gangbusters. Mm. That that novella sold thousands and thousands of copies and actually funded my overseas trip to Dublin in 2019 to do Worldcon and mm. let me stay there for like three weeks. Cool. <laughs> like... That novella has made more money than some of my trad pub books. That's really interesting. Uh, but yeah, I have I have thought about self pub as an alternative. It's just I know I'm so bad at many of the things that self pub requires that I would have to be paying people to do all those things, and that's kind of you know a, an upfront cost that I can't really afford. So I would want to self pub if I thought I could do it properly. Again, that novella back in 2018, I just, I wrote it as a vanity project. I made my own cover. I just threw it up there and people loved it. And I was like, don't take this the wrong way, but literally what is wrong with you? Hmm. (laughs) Uh, This sounds so bad, but I went through this whole period when Book Eaters came out, like before it came out, when the arcs were going out and it's starting to get reviews. And every time it got a nice review, I would think, like there was a part of me that just wanted to grab people by the shoulder and say, "What is wrong with you? Do you not have any fucking taste?" And <laughs> we we just kind of I don't know. You have this weird relationship with your own work. Uh, I'm kind of over that now. I try not to say that too often because I don't want to be disrespectful to the people that that like the book and have put time into it. And that's not reflective of <laughs> I like my relationship to my work. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with you, Scott? Do you have any taste? So I do not have any taste, and a lot of things are wrong with me. What do we yeah. think taste means, though? Because, I don't know, I have read a lot of books. I read constantly, and 90% of books that I've read from the past 10, 15 years, I'll start and just huck across the room. Mm-hmm. Well, metaphorically, because they're borrowed, mm. generally. But um, I have thrown my phone across the room because I just... I was like, this is so terrible. How did this get like a $750,000 advance? And people are like, oh, we love it. I'm like, well, none of y'all have any taste. <laughs> yeah. Is it weird that, that books, stories like that always give me hope? Because when I, I, I find a book that's like wildly popular and it sells millions and I hate every single word in it. And I think, yeah. well, that must mean that there's enough different readers out there to support a wide variety of tastes. That's, that's the lesson that I take from that. I'm like... 
people do have money and they do want to spend it on books and the fact that they want to spend it on terrible James Patterson ghostwritten books is none of my business. Um, they're not going to buy my books. I'm not writing the kind of books they want. Yeah. Other people will buy my books and uh, by will I mean actually will not <laughs> looking at sales. So the, the good thing though is I don't know if this is the case so much in the UK. I don't think it's very often the case in Canada, but uh, sorry, in, in the US, but in Canada, we have a fairly robust grant system. Oh, cool. So we have people that can not um, starve to death as writers because we apply for grants at like the provincial or federal level. Mm -hmm. I just got one um, that's probably going to be able to cover my bills for six months um, at the municipal level from the Edmonton Arts Council. That's awesome. And I'm super, super excited about that. The money just hit my account yesterday, which was great because I was starting to get a little sweaty. Uh -huh. Like. <laughs> Uh-huh. You know, again, in the interest of full transparency, because that's what this podcast is about, is 25K, which in theory covers your bills for a year because their subsistence payment is 2K a month. Yeah. That is about two-thirds of what I need mm -hmm. to cover just my basic bills, like, you know, mortgage and insurance and electricity and stuff. But still, I'm like, the pressure that is off me is immense. Yeah. Now I actually have to write the book I applied with, <laughs> but... But still, it's like getting an advance and like now this book will be in the world and possibly it will sell. And guess what? It's probably going to get like a 5K advance. Yeah. So I'm getting more money from the city to write this book, like to support me, an artist, yeah. than I would from actually selling the book. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I hope people listening are are fully understanding what we're hearing, right? That we have a very talented, passionate writer who has won multiple awards uh, i mean i i am so far removed from the award discussion that i don't even know how they happen like i i i hear sunyi and and people talking about oh it's this award now and i'm like okay whatever it's not gonna be me so <laughs> whatever um but you're also turning out multiple books per year you ran yourself to burnout and to the point of of needing to quit your full-time job because you were turning books in on time um and multiple books on time you're signing new deals yeah you're in in my opinion from what it sounds like you're doing everything you should be doing can be doing and more in the industry and yet it, it's not an industry or, or that reliably provides for people to even just cover basic necessities even mm -hmm. doing all of the right things you know, uh, it's disheartening, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what this podcast is for, right? Is, is trying to, to show the truth of, of what most people in this industry go through. Cause I think a lot of people who come up against these hardships just kind of fade away and go figure out what else to do with their life. Um, <laughs> But going back to you know your discussion of deadlines and things, I do think that's very interesting. And I think I wish at least that readers in particular and even other writers understood a little bit more of the context around those deadlines. I frankly mm -hmm. do not understand why people take publishing deadlines so seriously when there's so little money behind most of them and so little performance on the on the part of a publisher like that uh, mm -hmm. i went through something good question what's that but <laughs> that is a good question yeah <laughs> uh, for, for my first for my first novel and i know this is related to schedules 
but it did feel personal because I didn't know anything about how long edits took back then. Yeah. But yeah, it was about a hundred and ten thousand word novel, and it took thirteen months to get edits back, mm. and the edits were extremely minimal. There were like two paragraphs, so the edit letter was two paragraphs pasted into an email. Um, and then a handful of comments on the document itself. I think I turned it around in like two days and sent it back. And I was like, I'm, I'm gritting my teeth here. I'm like, did that have to take 13 months? Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. But it's, it's, I know there's a lot of scheduling happening behind the scenes. I know there are slots and the slots are basically inflexible. And that if somebody misses their slot by two weeks for doing what they're supposed to be doing, then that screws up the fall release or something like that the following year. Um, but yeah, again, for part of me, it's just like, well, you know what? For like an $1,800 advance, do I have to knock myself out doing this? I'm still gonna. But <laughs> I'm gonna hate myself for it. <laughs> that actually, that's, that's what I enjoy about this one, is I only have to sell about... I think I did the math on that. Uh, who's... The author Hannah, yeah, um, who did that? When will you earn out calculator? So I ran that through that. So with the five hundred dollar advance, I have to sell between two hundred and fifty and two hundred and seventy either paperback or e copies to earn out my advance. I might earn out on this one. Ah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, sales in publishing really do have to happen at a certain scale to even approach being, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a source of livable income. And that's why, mm -hmm. that's why I, I just simply do not understand how this industry continues to operate when they're both handing out such paltry amounts of money, delaying those uh, that money, not just from advances, but from royalties, you know, by six to 12 months, however mm -hmm. long it takes to actually account for um, sales and, and returns and all that kind of thing. Uh, and then acting like uh, there's some code of, of professionalism that's expected primarily on the side of the authors. They just don't pay for that professionalism. But I, I commend you for <laughs> meeting all your deadlines. Uh, not to say that's a bad thing. I just really get frustrated, especially when I see other authors uh, talking about how, oh, well, you know, they, they deserve what's coming to them. They didn't meet their deadlines or whatever. It's like, fuck that. Like, nothing good ever yeah. came to somebody because they met a deadline in this industry. Like, anyway, <laughs> the, the, the no, people who get preferential the, treatment are going to get it whether they hit a, a deadline or not. Yeah, that's exactly there's, it. There's just two things I'd add to that, I guess. Um, I guess very quickly, the one is that I remember in my writing moms group on Facebook, someone, this lady was expressing shock. She's like, oh, this famous author that I follow said that she hit, you know, the bestseller list, but she doesn't earn enough to live. How can that be? And I was like, because that means she sold like 10,000 copies once. Mm -hmm. And to live off that money, you need what, 50,000 sales a year. So you, you're getting like 50K a year in the US and yeah. that's before tax and agent fees and all that. So selling 50k copies a year is a shitload of copies most people mm -hmm. don't sell a fifth of that for a book in a book's lifetime right the, the average book sells 10,000 copies in its lifetime supposedly and obviously that number is, is comes with caveats but the amount of books you have to sell to actually make a living is kind of staggering yep. <laughs> when, yep. when you really break it down oh yeah the other side of it is when you're talking about why do people feel they need to meet it I think I think there's a sense that you you're so easily forgotten in publishing because pretty much the only time a publisher pays attention to a book is when it's debuting, mm -hmm. kind of 
the months before and after. And I think, you know, even for lead titles, that's true. And to some extent, it's more stark because you get a load of attention in kind of the months before and after, and then it goes quiet. And it's more like the way it is for mid-list all year round. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, but, you know, it does go quiet. So you don't, you know, you don't see your publisher, you don't see a publicist. It can be years or months before you actually have contact with someone in the industry (laughs) other than your agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Whereas true. if you're if you're handing books in, then you're actually interacting. It feels like you you kind of are on the the uh, treadmill, <laughs> <laughs> whether you want to be or not. Uh, it feels like stuff is happening. So yeah, well, I think also a lot of it too is just carryover from being, <laughs> she said, checking her vocabulary from being a normal person with a normal job for most of her yeah. life. Yeah, like that was the other thing. I think I was you know, semi-expecting, but also semi-thinking it was a joke in publishing. And I think I tweeted about this the other day. Like, you know, if I start a job at a factory because I've been hired to be a teapot engineer and there are five other teapot engineers and we're all producing teapots that are pretty much the same and people buy, you know, people want to buy these teapots, there's no reason that one of us should get $750,000 and one of us should get a slap in the face and one of us should get fired and one of us should get $5,000. Like, in theory, (laughs) we're all making teapot engineer wages and we're all turning in our teapots and the company is selling our teapots. It's just bizarre to me that publishing kind of doesn't work that way, especially when I see these garbage books coming out that got these major deals. And I'm like, obviously it's not a garbage book. Lots of people like it. And, you know, even though this debut author has no track record or whatever, the editor saw something in it that they want to throw their weight behind. I am not an editor and I didn't see it. So they know better than I do what's a good book and what's a bad book. I'm clearly writing bad books. This person who is making the big advance is clearly writing a good book. And I just don't have any taste because I happen to think that he wrote garbage. (laughs) That part to me is wild. The whole like, (laughs) the the, the fact that as a debut, not having a track record is beneficial. Like the the first time someone explained this to me, I think it might've been Pete McLean where he's someone you know they're basically saying you're in better standing as a debut with no sales track record than you are as a mid-lister with an established track record because when you have established sales whether it's your fault or not you're a known quantity that plugs into the equation when you're a debut you could be anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but and that's kind of backwards it's a backwards logic it's like yeah you could be anything you could be completely crap as well and they don't know they're just going to try and see and and how much they try and how well they try is, is what's changing and out of out of our control <laughs> yeah, I, I think the thing that most frustrated me wasn't even the uh, meritocratic nature or or what appears to be meritocratic on the surface. It was that each of those books, you know, or each of those teapots isn't getting the the same uh, the same shot and the same. Mm-hmm. It, it it it's not remotely the same path for any given book, right? Yeah, that that was the most surprising. Which thing. is also bizarre. Yeah, like this is this, and this is a running thing with my friends. Some of them are sort of pre-publication, I guess you'd say, like they're still querying or whatever. But they're like, if the publisher is publishing the book, do they not want to sell the book and make money selling their product? Yep. It's just bizarre that you would spend all that time and money hiring a cover artist and formatters and proofreaders and copy editors and printing the actual book and making sure it's distributed into bookstores and then not tell anybody. Yeah. (laughs) Like why invest 
anything in that case. And the answer that I've got back from people makes it sound even more insane. I mean, again, I've worked for a lot of industries. None of them have worked like publishing. And they're like, they are hoping that the ones they throw money at will make money. And the ones they don't throw money at will be some kind of secret hit. But again, don't you want to recoup your initial investment? Like you've paid in advance and you've printed this book and you've hired all these people. Why not at least let people know it's out there and make a handful of sales? <laughs> Some, someone told me, and I don't know if it's true, that the publishers can effectively write off books which are losses as, from their tax. So, oh, you know, okay. when you're well, a giant corporation, as long as some of your books are raking in profit, then the others are just completely written off as like I mean, tax losses. And if that's true, mm. <laughs> then if it's that's a, true, then it makes it's sense. A gamble. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I cruel, honestly but, think, yeah. yeah, I think it has less to do with tax implications because I mean, as a business, yeah. you want to you want to make a profit no matter what. I think it has more to do with, and, and Sun Yin, know we've discussed this um, mm -hmm. before. I think it has more to do with publishing having stacked margins so far in their favor that they really don't have to do a lot to break even. And as long as they're mm -hmm. breaking even on a book, it doesn't really matter, right? And and nobody's going to mm -hmm. really get in trouble for it. And I think it's incredible, especially the, the bigger publishers, I think it's incredibly easy for them to break even on a book that they didn't put much money into in terms of an author advance mm -hmm. and probably didn't put all that much money into in terms of a, a cover and design and, and that kind of thing especially if they had an in-house team work on a couple mm -hmm. work for a couple days to, to turn out a, a map and illustrations whatever they they've included it's just not that hard you know if they ship it out to stores mm -hmm. like they they do for all of their books uh, chances are they're going to break even or, or make a little bit of money. And if something happens and it breaks out, then great. But mm -hmm. where where that... Great. They also didn't pay for that. Yeah. It yeah, just yeah. happened organically. Yeah. yeah like Bigelist Dickless. Yeah, like Bigelist Dickless. That's right. But, I mean, they've, they've created what all businesses want, and that is a win-win situation for them in which they sign on a whole bunch of us and they put money into some... And they they have to make that money back, and so they try really hard, and they don't put that much money into others. And by virtue of just the the distribution system and the brand that they've created, they're nearly guaranteed to to make back at least their initial investment, and probably make some slim profit on it. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense because you would think they'd want to, you know, if they took the time to sign on a book and work on it and put years of development into it, which is typical in the publishing industry, that they'd want to maximize the gains. And a sane business would do that, right? <laughs> but it's also very safe for them. And, and think about any, any corporate situation, right? Like if there's no mm -hmm. consequence and there's no benefit to having something you worked on out-earn, especially if out-earning isn't going to even come close to the scale of books that have been signed with, you know, major marketing and sales pushes. So, you know, if if my book had, had way outperformed my advance, uh, I still probably wouldn't have reached anywhere near what a, a true lead would have done. And so there, there's just mm -hmm. no, and my, you know, my editor, the teams that worked on it, they have no incentive to do that. If, if that had happened with my mm -hmm. book, it would have been a, oh, I get cool, I guess, uh, situation and nobody benefits. Yeah. Nobody who actually yeah. influences those things happening benefits from it. And nobody has any consequences if, if my book tanks other than me, 
I have consequences. And your agent. And, and <laughs> yeah. my agent, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But this, this in, is a running in, gag with me too. I'm like, I'm yeah. glad my agent has some like bigger names than me so he can pay his rent because I sure am not helping. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But yeah, I mean, the whole discussion just makes me think, why should someone like me then stay in publishing? Yeah. Like, why not just quit? I'm uh, not going to get any support. I'm not making any money. I'm clearly no good. So well, I probably should just leave spite. and find a real <sighs> job and go back to writing for myself. Well, so that takes me to to my question <laughs> that that popped to mind uh, when you're talking about having friends in the writing world who are up and coming and seeking first deals, because Sunyi and I are friends mostly uh, through Sunyi with some up and coming folk who are either signing their first deals, have just signed, or still looking for agents, etc. What do you tell them when when they when you talk to them? Uh, about their plans for entering the industry, etc. What's your advice? Do you uh, and especially given that whole why should I keep going? Why should I keep going? Uh-huh. Well, no, I think the I think it's a different set of situations, though, right? Because before they have signed that deal, or before they've got representation, or before they've sold the book, or whatever, they're the way I was. They are an unknown quantity. Like this friend could be the one that gets that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar deal. Sorry. Do you mind? <laughs> There's a crow, and it's like literally right outside my window. I don't know if the mic is picking it up, but it's like, let me in. I can't hear it. No. <laughs> hey, crows are fun. <laughs> I would tell. Yeah, we can edit all that out. Uh, yeah, I would tell them. You know, follow your heart because it is a crapshoot. It's you're buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. I was in the business for a while there because I was like, well, as long as people want to keep offering me book deals, mm-hmm. then I'm still getting a lottery ticket, and then we'll see how much. You know the advances on this we'll see what kind of support i get on this or we'll see we'll see what i get we'll see what i get we'll see what i get yeah. and now i'm like i'm actually i think i might be done playing the lottery because i'm spending more sanity and time and you know self-worth mm-hmm. on the tickets than the tickets are paying back mm-hmm. but for these friends maybe that won't be the case and i can't tell them and i don't know i'm not an editor yeah. i'm not an acquisitions committee yeah so i do tell them you know <laughs> Manage your expectations. I don't expect your path to look like mine, yeah. but I don't expect your path to look like anyone else's either because everyone's path is extremely individual. And also listen to the Publishing mm. Rodeo podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's very important for managing expectations. And again, my last job was in environmental policy. Managing expectations was all I did. <laughs> I, I try never to give people advice, I think, these days about what they should do. Yeah. And especially when you get writers like, oh, which path should I take? And it's like, I'm not going to tell you that. I can just tell you what to expect from this one. And you can, you've got yeah. to make that decision yourself. And yeah. like, it sounds really harsh, but I, I joined a mentoring program last year and mm-hmm. I ended up rejecting just immediately all the people who said they weren't sure what path they wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's not because there's anything wrong with being unsure. It's because I feel like, to me, there's, I would feel unethical almost mm-hmm. taking the mm-hmm. time to convince someone, yes, you should go trad. <laughs> and then like yeah. they go through it and it just like, the machine breaks their spirit and then I would feel horrible the rest of my life whereas the people who are already like I'm determined to do it whether it's a good idea or not then I'm like okay mm-hmm. okay well I'm not going to change your mind anyway yeah yeah well and to me too I'm like I, I don't give advice as a rule like I just I finished this uh this last batch of SIFWA uh, mentoring I had two mentees and I'm like the first thing I'm going to tell you is I am not going to give you publishing advice I can tell you what my publishing experience has been like so far. Like I can go through that step by step if you, if you want, but that is just mine. 
I can talk about writing advice or craft advice. Publishing advice is different. <laughs> Those are two different things, I, apples and oranges. <laughs> I'm, I'm still just dumb enough to give situational advice, but I, I, <laughs> I, I always make sure to tell them that it is just one idiot's opinion, uh, and it obviously did not serve me well. But <laughs> I always say, please, please don't sue me. I'm a writer. I don't have any money anyway. That's right. This is not. A, give you the this is not advice. This is just Scott saying things. But it does. It, like like you both said, it it certainly depends on somebody's goals, right? Like if you just want to see your book on a Barnes and Noble shelf, and that's like a, a bucket list thing for you, and and something you mm -hmm. need to see to to be happy, signing most any trade uh, publishing deal is probably gonna do what you want, whether you make money from it or not. But for people who are getting into publishing with the intent of making an actual living and they don't have some other source of income like, you know, retirement or pension or, or what mm -hmm. have you. They are a real life person who has to make real life dollars to or whatever your currency is uh, to <laughs> to eat uh, and and have a house. Uh, I honestly have landed it these days. Find a true lead deal or seriously consider what else you're going to do to make money because I don't mm -hmm. think your journey in publishing is going to be as awesome, at least probabilistically, from a probabilistic standpoint, yeah. your journey in publishing is not yeah. going to be great. Like, it's not just a lottery ticket. Uh, I use that terminology yeah. often as well. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's like you're signing up to work on the railroad with the the hope that you're going somewhere with a gold mine at the end and there are very few gold mines at the end of railroads <laughs> mm -hmm. um like sorry you might be on one of the other railroads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah anyway yeah. Uh, that's my not advice for this episode yeah a, a lot yeah. of the money that comes from that allows you to survive as a full-time writer comes from things which are kind of peripheral to your main book so like foreign mm -hmm. deals or film deals if you get them or just mm -hmm. even things like opportunities the fact that your publisher will pay for you to go places the fact that um, literary festivals will pay you and stuff like that and those things are just often closed off to, to people who mm -hmm. aren't lead titles yeah. So to, it, to, it's um, and also to self self-publishers too yes um, and actually yeah that's very exciting uh, happening to me for basically the second time in my life. So in June, um, the uh, publishers slash translators of two of my novellas decided to release it in a single volume, which was great because that meant I had to come up with another title, which is my nemesis. I hate titles. <laughs> but um, they invited me to Barcelona for a week to oh. go to this uh, conference in Catalan. And I was like, I don't speak Catalan or Spanish. And they're like, we will look after you. When I got the email, I was like, oh, this, you know, this sounds amazing. I would love to come. Unfortunately, I can't afford to go. And they're like, we'll pay for it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, sorry. That changes everything. Um, but also, you know, to me, that's not expected. That's basically yeah. never happened before. Yeah. Uh, none of my publishers have offered to send me anywhere or, you know, come visit the offices or whatever in New York or, or anything like that. They're just like... Ugh, you f f filthy Canadian kind of stay where you are. <laughs> and also, we're not we're not paying you enough to care. So, like, if you were one of the big names, we would invite you. But uh, you just stay there and eat maple syrup or whatever it is you people do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because the bi 
big titles don't even need it as much. Like, I bet you Neil Gaiman never pays his own cab fare, right? But, like, he could. Yeah. <laughs> multi-millionaire. Just saying. <laughs> we need, like, a poorer rider's transport fund or something. Yeah, yeah, we need something like that. Like, you know, oh, thanks for inviting me to this con. I now cannot afford to Uber back from, you know, the con to my hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on, Scott. I kept cutting you off. Oh, you're you're <laughs> oh, totally yeah. fine. My point was only that assuming you're going to get nothing is a very safe assumption. So, oh, yeah. So this <laughs> this last week, my agent sent me a a, a video of Petrick. I don't remember Petrick's last name, but Pet, you know the the reviewer Leo. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was reviewing Tad Williams series. And Tad's a, a, a client of Matt's, uh, of my agents. And Patrick has reviewed Tad and has reviewed um, Brian Lee Durfee, who's also a, an, a, an agent sibling mm-hmm. of mine. And he was like, hey, you know, this guy seems pretty stoked about, you know, Tad and, and Brian's work. I think he might like yours, too. Have, are, are you on his radar at all? And I was like, well, buckle up for story time because <laughs> <laughs> didn't get arcs, right? We've gone over that. But I got a box of author copies like most people did. The the week or two or whatever before launch, after those those actual copies had been made and, and Tor told me they had them, I asked uh, the Tor publicist if they could send a copy to Petrick uh, because he had been reviewing, uh, I think he reviewed Richard Swan's book around that time because he and I debuted it around the same time. And I had seen him review Brian's book in the previous months or years. And so Tor said no. They they didn't want to ship it to him because he, I think he's in Thailand or, or somewhere like that. And I, I didn't have a, uh, I still don't have a foreign deal. I don't even have UK distribution, uh, a, a real UK deal at this point. So they were like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. And so I sent <laughs> a book to, to Patrick. And, you know, he, he was very gracious about it and was uh, showed it in a, a book haul thing. But I had to explain to, to my agent that no, Tor didn't send a, a book to Petrick, but I did. And so, yes, he has it and it's now up to him whether he reviews it ever. But yeah, assume if you're not a true lead from a, a publisher, you, you can pretty safely assume that nothing is is what you'll get yeah it's the um i think it's the visibility of it too like you're Mm -hmm. watching the reviewers review other books from your same publisher or you know that came out around the same time or you know seemed to be roughly equivalent to your book and then you're like oh they're really not though yeah or like Mm -hmm. oh you know the publisher sent a gigantic box of chocolates and a bouquet of roses to this author (laughs) and i got Silence. Dead silence. <laughs> oh, you know, happy launch day. <laughs> and you, know, you can't see anything. Yeah. Because by that point, it's too late and your launch day is passed. And you can't even be like, well, you know, if the publisher wanted to send me something, they would have. They clearly don't. There's only certain people they want to send these fancy things to. So you just have to sit there and fume uh, and then turn in the next book. Yep. <laughs> my editor sent me chocolates for the Lamy nomination. I was just like, oh, my God. I've never gotten anything for any award nomination or win from a publisher or my agent or my agency. Does not give you negotiating power. Like for next deal, can you you not like beat them with the award (laughs) stick? You'd hope so, but um, (laughs) yeah, I've actually got a novella coming out with Tor.com in 2024, which I actually have to do edits uh, before I leave for overseas in case I 
uh, die in Spain or something from the heat. <laughs> and um, well, it was just people keep warning me. I haven't actually checked the weather. Yeah, we'll see what if I get anything from that or if it's just going to come out and people will be like, oh, secret, secret book. You have to contact the fairies to know what this book is. I, and I know it's a novella, but that was also after all the award wins and that was still not breaking five figures. That was still less oh. than 10K, which is, which is fine. But at this point, I'm like, this is all I deserve. I am writing books that are worth about 5K. I mean, the, the numbers bear up. So that's the kind of books I'm writing. <laughs> it's so hard not to internalize. Yeah. Um, I haven't realized it. I have eaten oh, it. Oh, no. It is hard. <laughs> Super hard. But, I mean, the the other side of that coin, right, is is Sunyi's point that she made earlier. And I I don't even know who the guest is. But the, the guest that we're apparently having on that has some, <laughs> some pretty solid data around marketing spend, sales spend, because there are direct sales efforts behind the scenes, right? That, yeah nobody ever talks about and how those correlate to performance right and that it's it's really not necessarily any sort of quality metric right or even a although i mean that plays a part right like we have to say that up front is mm. that quality plays a part uh style plays a part the style uh and the type of story you release at any given time and what's happening in the world all that kind of thing luck plays a part but marketing and sales are highly correlated with outcomes uh in this industry because there is there really is so much that can happen for a book behind the scenes that they just don't mm -hmm. tell you because it's so much easier just to say some books don't work right but most of them that get the push do work and so what's that about I, I actually put together a, a spreadsheet that will never see the light of day uh, of a whole bunch of books that were either debuts or close to being debuts that came out around the same time my, uh, mine did. Because, you know, I watched my Goodreads score drop and and was very sad about it and, and sad that my numbers weren't going up and that I presumed my sales would suck. And, and compared to Sunny's, they did suck, but it turned out they were somewhat decent compared to what I had worried they would be. But anyway, I put together this sheet and just did a very simple linear regression to to see how Goodreads score was correlated with uh, the number of Goodreads ratings um, and reviews. And it's almost not correlated at all, at all right? Like <laughs> there, there are there are books that have that are doing huge numbers that have very similar ratings and this goes for for both um goodreads and amazon and audible ratings as far as i've looked into it right like my data set is only 50 ish books uh so not a, a huge data set but especially in such a random industry big enough to to give some idea of whether there's a significant correlation and there's there's just not. I, I never look at my Goodreads numbers. I signed up for Goodreads because a friend told me to so that someone wouldn't like yeah. squat on my name and pretend to be me. And I was yeah. like, why would that happen? I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nobody. Yeah. Uh, but I signed up for it anyway, and I just never look. <laughs> I, I, I looked obsessively and regretted it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm still. Because <laughs> I thought, you know, like, yeah. 
I know, I know you're still obsessive. Because I've always been really good with negative feedback and negative reviews and just shrugged it off. Mm. Like the first short story I ever published, the first review that first short story got was a one star from this guy. And it just like it started with, I see this person felt the need to write in present tense. And I was like, oh boy. (laughs) 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 Right? So I I thought I'm inured to it. But actually, the the sheer quantity of reading so many negative reviews did wear me down. Yeah. Um, and I, which I didn't expect, so I became less resilient to it rather than more, just because mm. so many. Oh my like god! Like an allergic reaction or something. Yeah, yeah like I a think, toxin. <laughs> yeah, I think up. from being in, you know, from spending so many years in science, I, I didn't really like notice. I, and I think that's one other benefit of coming into publishing from spending decades working and doing something else. Like, you know, if somebody gives my book one star at this point I'm just like oh I'm sorry your taste is so bad like and I just move on with my day <laughs> like uh nothing nothing affects me anymore science hammered all that out of me years and years and years ago <laughs> yeah in my case it I I want there to be logic I want there to be mm. a pattern and so goodreads unfortunately and you know whatever other ratings sources are the only source of data I have, even though I know it is absolute shit data. It's the only thing I can look at. So <laughs> I, I, I need that. Yeah. I, I have a compulsive need to, to find the answer, uh, even when there isn't one. Yeah, I figure those those aren't for me. Those are for readers. Yeah. What's what's useful for me is not coming from randos. Yeah. It's it's coming from editors. Yeah. Oh, almost all one and two star reviews are very personal and very vitriolic, and, and they're not. Are they? Yeah, mm. well, at least they're fun for mine. And I think a lot of the ones that I've read, because I used to review a lot on Goodreads and be a bit of a reviewer and stuff. Mm. Uh, very rarely do you read one and two star reviews. You're like, this is useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I think that's something useful to parse too is from reviews is what's useful and what's not useful. Mm. I've never seen anything useful from a bad review. Like people just aren't trying. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was going to ask at the start if, because I know, I know you were kind of listening to the podcast and... Um, there were things in it that are making you scream and I was just wondering if there's anything oh, so in particular <laughs> yeah okay. yeah oh uh the one in the last episode specifically I think so I haven't listened to all of them I was up to That's episode fine. what was it nine yeah. or something is um, that launch day I have yeah I have kind of a tough time with podcasts generally yeah. because I have a slight audio processing disorder um, the same, yeah. yeah and I, I try to get around it I can usually listen for a couple minutes at a time but this one I actually had to pause and like screech and then go back <laughs> because it was it was when you guys worked out the correlation between the advance and the sales mm-hmm. and you're like yeah if you get 10 times more advanced then you literally not metaphorically get 10 times the sales and i'm like oh i'm fine i've heard this before and then all of a sudden the screaming started <laughs> it was like a spontaneous ejection of something from my body <laughs> like i was possessed it really it is weird how cleanly that turned out right like i wasn't expecting it, the math to work out like that because yeah. you know like my my highest advance so far is not even broken five figures yeah so this i guess explains why i'm not selling any books which is fine but um <laughs> just hearing the hearing the math on the show i was like oh i'm a scientist i would like to hear how this works out that was wrong yeah but, <laughs> yeah okay. I, I did not like that at all there there, <laughs> there do seem to be instances of uh, you know, people getting uh, a, a certain advance and, and outperforming on that advance or vice versa. 
but with Sun Yi and I, it, it worked out pretty neatly. Unfortunately for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm I'm out of material. We've kept you an hour and a half, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. No, yeah, thank you so much for the invite. I feel like I may have vented some inappropriate things here. <laughs> please, please edit out all the parts where I'm like, I'm dying. I'm going to quit publishing, and I hate everybody. No, <laughs> that's a lot of parts. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave in like the first five minutes and we should be okay. Uh, you guys can just vamp for the rest of it. <laughs> when I get around to editing it, I'll send it to you. It's fine. It's not as bleak as the, the bonus episode one I did while Scott was away, which was me and Aura Verdi and, and Wayne. That was so bleak. Holy shit. I'm so sad I, I missed like, that. After, I really am. I was like, hey guys, how do you cope with like, you know, mental health? And they were basically like drugs, alcohol, and lifting oh, weights. <laughs> So, magic mushrooms is a big part of that, that recorded chat. Um, and people joke about why, you know, why so many writers are alcoholics and everyone's like, oh, haha, that's a stereotype. And I'm like, mm, it's not. It's not, yeah. We're all. <laughs> no, it takes the edge off. I'm just saying. <laughs> it does. <laughs> You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.